everyone. You are listening to the Genealogist Journal podcast. Twice a week, we take a deep look into the interconnecting roots of history and genealogy. I am your host, historian and genealogist, Jenny Finson. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today, we start a four-part series on early Canadian history. We're going to explore who were the first European explorers to make landfall in North America in the region we now call Canada. Who were the North American nations that contacted these early explorers? And what was the immediate effect of the first European settlers on those nations? And finally, we'll explore who was Samuel de Champlain and what was his role in forming New France. Before we get started with Canadian history, I would like to talk a little bit about Genealogist Journal podcast in this new year of 2022. I'm excited to kick off the second season of Genealogist Journal podcast. We have many new intriguing episodes coming up. Another exciting thing is our online store on genealogistjournal.com. It will soon be up and running. My husband Marlon is an awesome metal worker. He makes anything from custom knives to beautiful jewelry. I'm looking forward to offering some of his pieces in our online store. It really is great work. Also, looking ahead into this new year, I hope to publish my first genealogical book. Since I have really solidified my role as the next family historian for both my husband's family and my own in the past few years, I have inherited a large treasure trove of photographs and documents. The voluminous amounts of pictures, and I mean literally thousands of photographs, I have found myself in need for an efficient and effective way to catalog and archive them all. So I took a hot moment and came up with my own cataloging system. After cataloging over a thousand photographs from various family branches, and trust me, I have so, so many more to go, I found the system highly useful and easy to use. And I hope you find it so too. Anyway, my book on genealogical cataloging will hopefully come out this year. But before we turn our attention to early Canadian history, I would like to announce one more thing. You can now find a sampling of this podcast on YouTube. Just search for Genealogist Journal Podcast and check us out. Okay, now let us dive right on into early Canadian history. So who were the first European explorers to land on the lovely shores of what is now called Canada? Well, most historians and archaeologists today now agree that the Vikings from Scandinavia were the first Europeans to visit North America. The remnants of a settlement in Newfoundland called, in English, the Cove of the Meadows, dates to the 11th century. The Vikings only stayed briefly before abandoning their North American settlement. We can only speculate their reasons for doing so at this time. It wasn't until almost 500 years later that Newfoundland was rediscovered by Italian explorer John Cabot, or Giovanni Caboto, under the commission of King Henry VII of England in 1497. His mission was to find a northern route to China as a way to compete with the Spanish expeditions. After 1497, Cabot and his son Sebastian Cabot continued to make other voyages to find the Northwestern Passage. Other explorers as well continued to sail out of England to the New World. Sadly, the details of these voyages are not well recorded. The European settlement of what is now Canada didn't really start until 1534, some 37 years after the first voyage of John Cabot. 
Now, the English were not the only Europeans exploring this territory. The Portuguese and the Spanish also sought to claim the land as their own. In fact, based on the Treaty of Tordesillas, the Spanish claimed territorial rights in the area visited by John Cabot in 1497 and in 1498. Signed June 7th, 1494, the treaty divided the newly discovered lands outside Europe between the Portuguese Empire and the Spanish Empire, along a meridian 370 leagues west of Cape Verde Islands, off the west coast of Africa. That line of demaceration was about halfway between the Cape Verde Islands, which the Portuguese already claimed, and the islands entered by Christopher Columbus for Spain on his first voyage, respectively Cuba and Hispaniola. The lands to the east would belong to Portugal, and the lands to the west to Castile. Despite considerable ignorance of the geography of the so-called New World, Portugal and Spain largely respected their treaty. The other European powers, particularly those that became Protestant after the Reformation, however, did not sign the treaty, and they generally just ignored it, such as John Cabot and the English. Even though the Spanish and Portuguese generally respected their treaty, that didn't stop Portuguese explorers. João Ferdinand Lavrador would continue to visit the North Atlantic coast, which accounts for the appearance of Labrador region on the maps of the period. In 1501 and 1502, the Court Real brothers explored Newfoundland, or Terra Nova, and Labrador, claiming these lands as part of the Portuguese empire. In 1506, King Manuel I of Portugal created taxes for the cod fisheries in Newfoundland waters. João Álvarez Fagundas and Pedro de Barcelos established fishing outposts in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia around 1521. However, these were later abandoned, with the Portuguese colonizers focusing their efforts on South America, like as in Brazil. The extent and nature of Portuguese activity on the Canadian mainland during the 16th century remains pretty unclear and controversial. One thing is for sure, their activity in Canada blatantly ignored the treaty they had with Spain. Now, to put all this activity in Canada in perspective, the Puritans who came over on the Mayflower did not arrive off the coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts until late November of 1620. That was over a hundred years after the English, Portuguese, Spanish, French, and other Europeans began exploring the coastlines of North America. Uh, talking about the French, they couldn't be left out of the search for a northern route to the Far East, not if they were to compete on a European level. So, explorer Jacques Cartier from Brittany sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and entered the Gulf of St. Lawrence. There, he planted a giant crucifix into the shore of what is now Gaspé, just north of Quebec City, claiming all he could see for the King of France. Now, let me remind you, that the Spanish crown claimed, air quotes, this land already. Cartier planting a huge cross where he and his crew landed almost seems like a giant middle finger to Spain. During this age of exploration, France and Spain were enemies. In fact, England and Spain often teamed up together against France, even though their alliances never really lasted all that long. So, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. If you're not up on your Canadian geography, you might have trouble imagining where the Gulf is on the map. I know I had to look it up. 
The St. Lawrence Gulf sits between the island of Newfoundland, New Brunswick, which is on the mainland, and Nova Scotia. You get the idea. It's right in there, in that area. Anyway, Jacques Cartier was an ambitious man. He wanted to continue what John Cabot had started. He wanted to discover a western passage to the wealthy markets of Asia, specifically China. It took him 20 days to sail across the northern Atlantic Ocean. Cartier was the first European to describe and map the Gulf of St. Lawrence and the shores of the St. Lawrence River. He named that country, or that area, the Country of Canada's, after the Iroquoian names for the two big settlements he saw at what is now Quebec City and at Montreal Island. He attempted to establish a permanent settlement in the new territory, but ultimately he failed. So what about the inhabitants already living around the areas of Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick? The eastern woodland areas of what became Canada were home to the Algonquian and Iroquoian peoples. The Algonquian language is believed to have originated in the western plateau of Idaho, or the plains of Montana, and moved with migrants eastward, eventually expanding in various manifestations all the way from Hudson Bay to what is today Nova Scotia in the east and as far south as the Tidewater region of Virginia. The Iroquois during the time and into the colonial era of North America was a powerful confederacy of five nations. Their influence extended from New York all the way into Canada to the Great Lakes and south into Virginia and Kentucky. That is quite an area of influence. The Iroquois were a powerful factor in North American colonial policy. Now, the St. Lawrence Iroquoians and the Wendat or Huron, Erie, and, and Susquehannock were all independent peoples known to the European colonists who spoke Iroquoian languages. They are considered Iroquoian in a larger cultural sense. They were descended from the Proto-Iroquoian people and spoke the language. Historically, however, they were competitors and enemies of the Iroquois League of Nations. These nations and peoples were organized societies with sustainable economies, sophisticated political systems, complex spiritual beliefs, and vibrant cultures. However, by European standards of the time, their technology, such as weaponry and farming, agricultural tools, they were considered simple. So, as I am sure you are aware of, as European settlers populated North America, the indigenous people were often uprooted from their traditional homes and villages, either through warfare or forced relocation and pushed into remote areas. Outgunned by European technology and susceptible to European disease because they had no immunity to them, the vast majority of the native Canadian population quickly was in decline. However, Europeans would often work with different indigenous people in hunting and fur trade and sometimes in wars against other European nations in their grab for land and resources. So back to Jacques Cartier. So now despite the initial failures at settlement by Cartier, French fishing fleets visited the Atlantic coast communities and sailed into the St. Lawrence River, trading and making alliances with First Nations as well as establishing fishing settlements such as in Pierce in 1603. As a result of France's claim and activities in the colony of Canada, 
The name Canada was found on international maps showing the existence of this colony within the St. Lawrence River region. If you would like to see a couple of these early maps, go to our website at genealogistjournal.com. I've posted the pictures on our blog. So, in 1604, a North American fur trade monopoly was granted to Pierre du Gaua, Seigneur de Mons. At that time, the fur trade was becoming large in North America. It was very lucrative and was easily becoming one of the main economic ventures in North America. So much so that on the West Coast, less than 50 years later in 1648, the Russians were beginning to explore Alaska, intent on finding a rich and fertile land in furs. And they did find it. There's plenty of furs in Alaska, much to their delight. The Russians and the Chinese highly valued these furs, and there was high demand for them. Anyway, Dugawa led his first colonization expedition to the island located near the mouth of the St. Croix River. Just to kind of picture where this is, the St. Croix River acts as the boundary between Maine and New Brunswick in Canada today. Among Dugawa's lieutenants was a geographer named Samuel de Champlain, who promptly carried out a major exploration of the northeastern coastline of what is now the United States. I have posted his map from 1612 on our blog. You should go check it out. Champlain was quite zealous in his endeavors. He was quite the visionary leader in building the New France colony. In the spring of 1605 under Champlain, the New St. Croix settlement was moved to Port Royal. That would be in today's Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. So just remember, the Puritans haven't even landed on Plymouth Rock just yet. It is still 1605. It was about this time that Champlain took on the role of governor of New France. He created several permanent cities for French farmers, fishermen, and fur traders, including Quebec City, one of the earliest permanent settlements, which would become the capital of New France and later Canada. He ruled over the city and its affairs and sent out expeditions to explore the interior. Champlain became the first known European to encounter Lake Champlain, which of course was named after him, in 1609. By 1615, Champlain had traveled by canoe up the Ottawa River through to the center of Windat or Huron country near Lake Simico. So during these voyages, Champlain aided the Windat or Huron in their battles against the Iroquois Confederacy. As a result, the Iroquois would become enemies of the French. They became involved in multiple conflicts later known as the French and Iroquois Wars that lasted until the signing of the Great Peace of Montreal in 1701. Even though the New France colony had been established, they were not the only Europeans there still. In 1583, by royal prerogative of Queen Elizabeth I of England, you can't get rid of the English that easy, Humphrey Gilbert had claimed St. John's Newfoundland as the first English permanent colony. Now remember, to give a little bit of perspective, the English Puritans did not arrive in Massachusetts until late November 1620, 37 years after St. John's colony. After Queen Elizabeth's reign, additional English colonies were established. These were Cupids and Fairyland. I like those names. 
Cupids established in 1610 was the oldest continuously settled official British colony in Canada. Cupids is believed to be the site of the firstborn child of European parents in the country. Fairyland was originally established as a station for migratory fishermen in the late 16th century, but had been earlier used by the French, Spanish, and Portuguese. By the 1590s, it was one of the most popular fishing harbors in Newfoundland and claimed by Sir Walter Riley. The Scots were also in the area. On September 29, 1621, a charter for the foundation of a New World Scottish colony was granted by King James to William Alexander. In 1622, just a year later, the first settlers left Scotland to settle on Nova Scotia. Initially, they failed. Permanent Nova Scotian settlements were not firmly established until 1629, during the end of the Anglo-French War. In 1631, ten years later, Charles I of England signed the Treaty of Sousa, ending the war and returning Nova Scotia to the French. So there goes the Scottish settlement. The return of fully French rule over New France led to new French emigrants making the voyage across the Atlantic Ocean in search of a different life. However, at this point, Samuel de Champlain, he died. After his death in 1635, the Roman Catholic Church, especially the Order of the Jesuits, became the most dominant force in New France. The hope was to establish a utopian European and Aboriginal Christian community. I don't know about you, but when I hear the words utopian society or utopian community, it just sends shivers of fear down my spine. Many in history have tried to build utopian societies, and inevitably, death and suffering are the result of such pipe dreams. Anyway, what I find interesting is that even though New France was a colony filled with Frenchmen and a few French women, it was not under the direct control of the French crown. The Company of New France held that power. In 1663, rather late in the game I'd say, King Louis XIV, the Sun King, took direct control over the colonies from the company. Another interesting tidbit about the New France colony is that even though the immigration rates remained fairly low, the population growth spiked. Most of the new arrivals were farmers with their families or their wives. The women, seemingly due to the natural abundance of food such as meat and fish, clean water, and living in the right conditions to conserve food for throughout the winter, the women had about 30% more children than women who remained in France. That is a considerable number. 30% more children? No wonder the population just spiked. Now, remember, in 1635, Samuel de Champlain died, and the Jesuits took over being the ruling power in the colony. During the colonial period, the French that settled along the shores of the St. Lawrence River were specifically Latin Rite Roman Catholics, including a number of Jesuits, super dedicated to converting the indigenous population one way or another. Throughout the 1640s, Jesuit missionaries penetrated the Great Lakes region and converted many of the Huron. The missionaries came into conflict with the Iroquois, who frequently attacked Montreal. The presence of Jesuit missionaries in Huron society was non-negotiable. The Huron relied on French goods to facilitate life and warfare. Because the French would refuse trade, 
to all indigenous societies that denied relations with the missionaries, the Huron had more of a propensity towards Christian conversion. One aspect of indigenous society and culture that Jesuits tried to destroy was the matriarchy. Indigenous women were highly regarded and respected within their societies and participated in political and military decisions as well as in everyday life. Jesuits attempted to eliminate monarchy and shift the powers of men and women to accommodate those of European societies. In France, women are to be obedient to their masters, their husbands. Uh-huh. The Jesuits tried to justify this way of thinking, but it fell pretty hollow. Indigenous women grew worrisome of the presence of these missionaries, fearing that they would lose their power and freedom within their communities. It was a justified concern on their part. The Iroquois did not want anything to do with the Jesuits and their ideas. By 1649, both the Jesuit mission and the Huron society were almost destroyed by the Iroquois invasions. Things were getting out of hand. New France had been left without a bishop for the first 50 years of its settlement. During this time, spiritual matters were often left up to the colony religious officials to regulate with the authority moving from the Recollects to the Jesuits. And we know how that went. Not well at all. As the result of increasing tensions regarding the religious state of the colony, Francis Xavier de Montemorsi Lovial was made the first Roman Catholic Bishop of Quebec, appointed when he was just 36 years old by Pope Alexander VII. And that is where we're going to leave it for now. Join us next time to hear the story of Bishop Laval and how he changed the course of New France. Remember, if you wish to see maps of early France, just go to our website at genealogistjournal.com and take a look. If you liked what you heard here today, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify to hear all of our episodes. Also, check out our website at genealogistjournal.com. Join our community for access to more content, genealogical tips, and dynamic genealogical and historical conversation. 